Steve Mursky here. Just over a year ago, we ran an interview with playwright, actress, and journalist Anna DeVere Smith. She was preparing to stage her performance about the healthcare system, Let Me Down Easy, at Arena Stage in Washington, D.C. I just learned that the show is running on PBS this weekend as an episode of their series, Great Performances. You can check your local listings to find out if it's being aired where you are. And it's also now available to watch anytime on the PBS website. Just go to pbs.org and search for Anna DeVere Smith or Let Me Down Easy or the videos of the series Great Performances. Now here's the podcast we did with her. Welcome to Science Talk, the more or less weekly podcast of Scientific American, posted on December 20th, 2010. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast... So my overall oeuvre, as it may be called, has been really since the late 70s, early 80s, going around America with a tape recorder, interviewing people with the idea that I could absorb the country by absorbing the words of its uh, of its citizens. That's Anna DeVere Smith. You know her as the hospital administrator on Nurse Jackie and the national security advisor on the West Wing, but she's best known for portraying numerous real people, sometimes a couple of dozen, in a single evening of theater. And she's been investigating the health care crisis in her unique way. The theatrical production she developed, Let Me Down Easy, came to New York last year and will be staged again starting soon in Washington, D.C. More on that later. Right now, Anna DeVere Smith. We spoke at our office at New York University where she's on faculty. Can you tell me about the origins of, of the health care work? In the late 90s, Ralph Horowitz, who is now... Uh, at Stanford as a, a professor at the medical school and an internist, um, invited me to come to the Yale School of Medicine to interview doctors and patients and to present these characters at Medical Grand Rounds. And so I was so drawn in to that whole project and to Yale and to Ralph, um, and some of his colleagues that I remained interested in the issue. And then over the next 10 years, I interviewed over 300 people on three continents, all around the issue of the vulnerability of the body and the resilience of the body, and ultimately wrote Let Me Down Easy. It had several different versions. Two of the versions focused more on human rights, and I was thinking of the body as vulnerable to the state, but as I began to prepare to come to New York, the healthcare debate really, really ramped up uh, last summer, summer of uh, 2009, rather. And so I decided to refine the play and narrow it down to issues that had to do with healthcare. But it's really not a political play in terms of a political debate. I would say it tells more the human story. Which, by necessity, sort of is political, though. Oh, oh, yeah. It's political because it would be hard for you to come away from the play and have a question about whether I thought healthcare, universal healthcare, was a good idea. Right. You've you've spoken to other interviewers about the reactions of audiences to some of the people in the play who are really in bad shape, mm-hmm. and and how sympathetic mm-hmm. the audiences become what maybe an audience that you wouldn't expect to feel that way about a particular character right that's right uh audiences who come to the theater in new york 
tend to be, it would, it skews, um, educated, it skews privileged, it skews white. Uh, although I am very happy the extent to which these audience for this play were, were diverse. But I would say one of the most popular characters in the play is a young doctor who was in New Orleans right after Katrina working at Charity Hospital, which was one of the two earliest hospitals for poor people in America. And I would say most audiences really, really responded to her, Kirsten Kurtz Burke. And what she's really saying, in a way, is it's it's a disgrace how we treat poor people. And no matter how much you are committed to and how hard you work to try to give poor people good medical treatment, in the end, um, their lives are still overcharacterized by their poverty because there are just too many other forces. And she's followed by the current dean of the Stanford Medical School, Phil Pizzo, who says, you know, he's concerned that where we're headed is a healthcare system that's going to look like that of a developing nation, which is like shocking. And when he said that to me the first time, I, I couldn't believe it. But Phil Pizzo's not really the, you know, when you meet him, he looks like a scientist. Uh, he doesn't seem to be the kind of person who would exaggerate something like that. And he points out that between obesity, uh, and also the number of new infectious diseases that we have around us, the system's just going to, in addition to all the other problems the system has, the system isn't going to be able to bear it. You, know, you mentioned Phil Pizzo, and I'm going to go off in that direction because you brought him up. Uh, in an interview that you did with Stanford, you talked about how his precision of language made it more challenging in some ways to perform him. I'm sure people who are listening to this know what you do, but why don't, why don't we tell them what your, what your basic kind of, uh, procedure is so that, you know, if there are a few people who aren't familiar with your work, they'll know what we're talking about when we talk in these terms. Right. So my procedure is to take something that somebody said, uh, tape recorded and videotaped and to, learn exactly what they said, which isn't usually what you think they said. And by that I mean the number of times they say uh or um, where they say uh or um, um, words that in your mind you would think uh, would be a part of a sentence that are not there. Mm-hmm. Um, so training my tongue to do what somebody did. When I was a girl, my grandfather said, if you say a word often enough, it becomes you. So my overall oeuvre, as it may be called, has been really since the late 70s, early 80s, going around America with a tape recorder, interviewing people with the idea that I could absorb the country by absorbing the words of its uh, of its citizens and certainly casting a wide net and always uh, having a pretty diverse uh, group of people who end up in my plays. Is everybody interesting, by the way? Hmm. That's a wonderful question. Um, I almost would say no, but I think that my work as an interviewer is to try to find that place where they are interesting. I was interviewing a young woman once who did not seem very interesting to me, in large part because she spoke in a monotone and... uh 
or rather I should rephrase that and say I was worried about trying to perform her because her language was so uniform and there was very little movement. So part of what I have to be concerned about is how an audience is going to maintain its interest. Sure. And suddenly she told me about um, uh, being in college and studying grass, that she took this whole class just on grass. And I was like, you took a whole class. We're not, we're not, we're talking about grass right. in the ground. Lawn grass. Lawn gl- grass. Right. I said a whole course on grass. And she got so excited about how, you know, when you look at grass, you think it's green, but there's so many different, and she was just like everything opened up. I mean, she was a different person. Uh-huh. And so I do think that my job is to bring people to that point where you tap into something that they think is extraordinarily interesting. And once you trip on that, you're fine. I mean, for years, uh, one of my favorite questions was, have you ever been accused of something that you didn't do? Because it would bring this really dramatic kind of talking. Mm -hmm. Because all of us are very, very interested in ways that something isn't fair or that, you know, an injustice has been done to us or our heart's been broken. Um, And that really, that question is one of the questions that taught me how to listen um, because it provided me that kind of vocal variety that I'm looking for. That's really interesting. We'll get back to Pizzo, but but you took me to another place now. Another character that you perform is the, the bull rider. And I saw a clip. I'll, I'll give out the uh, URLs uh, after you hear the interview out there for places where you can see some of the clips of you performing uh, some of the people. And the bull rider has a – what's his name again? Brent Williams. Brent Williams had a very particular kind of halting speech where he might – he might – he might repeat and – and I wanted to ask you, what do you learn about what's going on inside the person by that kind of a speech affect? Well, I learn – well, first of all, I'm learning something kinetic about them, which is hard to put into words. But I do think that part of what we are is our kinetic experience of ourselves. So – um, I have a certain experience of myself physically that I experience every day or when I'm in the gym or if I'm swimming. Um, and so part of it is beginning to, when I begin to feel different kinetically, then I know I'm close to the state that I need to be in for acting. Uh-huh. So if, if my mouth starts to feel different. So, so the words are going to make that happen. It's not just the accent. Right. But the words are going to make my mouth start feeling different. And in for many, many years, I didn't videotape this play, Let Me Down Easy, is the first one out of 18 or 20 plays where I've used video. Um, and so I would do interviews over the phone, and then people – I always invite people to see themselves performed. People would come or their friends would come, and they would say, well, how'd you get the body? And it's because of the way the act of speaking – you know, it's really not happening just even in your mouth. It's happening all throughout your body. Right. begins to inform the whole thing. And I know that I've had the experience just goofing around doing a, a, an impersonation of a friend where all of a sudden by adopting what appears to me to be that person's physicality, these emotions start to hit. 
Right. And it's, mm. it's overwhelming sometimes. You, mm. And I don't know if you can really say that you're then able to have an experience of what they're actually feeling, but it sure feels that way. Well, it's empathy. Or maybe you'll have the experience of, uh, going to a movie and, uh, watching an actor and coming out onto the street and you, uh, you're walking like him. Yeah. Um, that's the way that our body itself has the opportunity to have a kinetic response that empathy is in what we call empathy is in part that it's not just imagining right. somebody else or, or let me say that I know that imagination lives throughout my whole body. It's not just in my head. And my work as an actor has been to develop a specific kind of imagination, which is a physical, vocal and mental imagination and being in the presence of people for a long time and studying there and being moved by them and being attracted to them um and then studying their words over and over again with my headphones on is what uh gives me this bigger sense of them so that you feel to use a sort of dangerous word possessed of them i don't mean in terms of voodoo but you feel mm-hmm. occupied right. by them so if i'm working well and i play the bull rider i feel like i have a longer torso, uh, smaller hips. Uh, um, it's very easy for me to really strut like him. Um, not a way that I present myself in the world. Right. And getting back to Pizzo now, you, you commented in this other interview I heard about how his precision of language, even on the rare occasions when he would say, uh, or, um, was so constraining. But that's the way you work. Not, I wouldn't call it constraining. It was very demanding, demanding because he okay. is able to speak in paragraphs. Yeah. Um, he has that particular kind of intelligence that he can speak in a long paragraph. He speaks like he writes. You know, some people are able to write like they speak, mm-hmm. but he speaks like he writes. So if I'm not careful where the challenge is, it could, the performance can seem like an essay because he's able to speak that way. That's really interesting. Um, let's go back to the, the actual subject matter. What do we get as the audience? Because we could watch the videos you shoot of the people that you're interviewing. So what do we get as the audience by your effort to turn this into a performance? Mm. Yeah, a really smart linguist told me what I should say when people ask me that question. Uh-huh. And I can't remember. <laughs> um, but I think what you're really watching is not, it's not the same as a video, obviously, because I, I, mean, I can't render perfectly what really happened. You are watching, even as I attempt to make it look effortless, you are interested in my effort to become somebody else. And so you can't believe it. When I, when you become Ann Richards, when I become Ann Richards, yeah. when I become something, particularly something that you identify as really, really different from me. Mm-hmm. And with Ann Richards, it could be that you, many people know her. So, you know, they can't believe it, but you, on another level, you know, you know, that type of person, right? We sort of catalog people. So, you know, that type of person, like the bull rider, people don't know Brent Williams, except people who are very involved in bull riding, but you know, I'm not that type of person. 
and you'd be really surprised if you'd never met me before and I walked in a cocktail party looking like I look, mm-hmm. uh, talking like Brent. Sure. We would think there was something probably psychologically wrong or with you. Or you would just think, that's odd. Weird, yeah. Yeah, where'd she come from? I mean, I don't, wow, that's yeah. not what I expected to come out of her mouth. Yeah. From your hundreds of interviews and also with healthcare practitioners, the political system seems completely dysfunctional right now. And it seems like it's going to be impossible to have a functional healthcare system with a dysfunctional political system. So what are we to do? Um, I really don't know what we're to do. Uh, it seems to me to be a no-brainer every time I go to the doctor, or anytime anybody I know goes to the doctor, that this system doesn't work. And it's so, it, the only way we can do things is, is a society and a democracy is through a political system. But honestly, it, you know, when you think about it, then you have to be grateful for things that did change. You know, if we were to look back at how we were in 1955, living in Jim Crow, living in segregation, living in segregated schools, it's hard to believe that was America, but it really was. And we can only assume that if this argument over health care continues, it's going to lead us to be in a place where in another 50 years, citizens aren't going to say, I can't believe that was America. Mm -hmm. Because inevitably, we have to do something about this, even at the level of how much our economy is tied to it. And the other thing that Phil Pizzo and others have, have talked to me about is that we're really getting to the point, and this is hard for us as Americans, we're we we can't afford to have everything. And so we're going to have to make some decisions that uh, are ethical. Uh, and I think we need to get on to the business of that rather than continuing to spin our wheels. Um, you know, one of the things Pizzo said that's not in the show is that when he was a kid, if the doctor came to your house, this is when doctors still made house calls, mm-hmm. And you were sick and the doctor take a look, took a look at you and said, he's fine. He'll be all right in a couple of days. Just let him rest. If the doctor didn't give you medicine or an injection, your mother felt like, well, why did I bother to bring you here? Why am I, why am I wasting my money right. if you're not going to do something? And so we've become sort of addicted to procedures. Um, and we know, we know that there are so many things that we could be doing in terms of what used to be called preventative medicine mm-hmm. that we're not doing. We're not asking Americans to live well. And there are a lot of things that make that harder. Uh, no gym in the schools, right. the abundance of food that we don't need, food that's know. not really food, has no nutritional value. Um, as the government is trying to promote anti-obesity measures they're also promoting the consumption of much more cheese so that oh they, i saw that. right with domino's right. pizza right so domino's is, sales are up because their cheese their pizza is a lot cheesier now right well one of the doctors at yale pointed out to me that one place where uh, medicine and the market uh and the government have been able to work effectively well maybe leave the market out of this but uh, at least in terms of, of advertising and perceptions, um, is in the area of smoking. Mm-hmm. You know, still there are too many people who smoke, but when I was a kid, right. you know, it was still glamorous, you know, mm-hmm. the Marlboro Man, all that stuff, the Virginia Slims, that's gone. And so there is a model for how uh, different 
kinds of groups can come together with medical community to collaborate and get people to live differently. And in terms of obesity, this is, this is huge because right now medicine doesn't have any answers really. You know, they don't, you know, you go to the doctor and you say, how can I drop some weight? And they say, calories in, calories out, mm-hmm. you know, um, eat less, move more. Uh, what do they say? You know, now whoever invents that pill is going to be very wealthy, but until that time, Medicine doesn't really have a whole lot to offer other than to say you have to uh, watch out. But there are other collaborators who could be brought into that discussion, namely I think the people who who help us move. And I get to have a trainer because I think that is a financial um, priority for me. Right. It's an investment. It's an investment for me and in my health, and I'm very motivated to make that investment. But I know that a lot of people can't do that and they don't live places where they can move freely or feel safe moving. Yeah, that's a really good point too. There are a lot of people who won't go out for a walk because it's dangerous. Right. Um, I could be completely wrong about this, but I think that part of our problem is that there are large numbers of people, some of whom have political power, who believe that suffering is good for you? Well, the problem is that uh, when people suffer, either um, because of their political circumstances or their physical circumstances or out of uh, the inability to have education and therefore the ability to make choices that would help them get out of what is causing their suffering... What I don't understand about that kind of an argument is that it's an argument that assumes that we can afford to lose people, that people are disposable. Uh, I mean, I think a, a healthy, a healthy country is a country where people are healthy physically. Mm-hmm. Um, and a smart country is a country where people are educated. So the notion of suffering being for some learning experience is ridiculous because the suffering can also uh, win. It could defeat you. Mm-hmm. You do talk about the um, not to try to find the, the value in suffering that is unnecessary, but when when someone has experienced pain, they might be the best healers, the, the wounded healer. Was right. Well, the, that's an idea. I guess Carl Jung talked a lot about the, the wounded healer. I mean, I think there we're really talking about compassion and empathy is that um, sometimes the people who've had the hardest road uh, come out of it with a real generosity of spirit uh, and an understanding to help others. It's, it's, it's not odd to find that phenomenon, somebody mm-hmm. who went through something and knows that you can come out on the other side. Look at the people who, in response to the... Um, what happened at Rutgers when this young man, Darun Ravi, mm-hmm. uh, turned his webcam on his roommate, uh, who was, uh, you know, having an intimate, uh, relationship with another man and, and the, you know, when, when he found out what happened, jumped off the George, George Washington Bridge. And a lot of people who came forward with this whole, it gets better campaign. Right. These are people who want to share that the fact that there is light at the end of the tunnel. And so 
often we find people who came from vulnerable communities, for example, coming out of it doing work that is to help help people mm-hmm. in that in that situation. So in that way, is suffering good? I don't know, because if you don't come out the other side, you can't really be of use. And then, too, there are people who are living in um, spaces that where they're not healthy and they're not taken care of, um, and they develop uh, alternative communities, alternative rules, alternative mm-hmm. uh, social systems like gangs. Right. <laughs> and then what we have is behavior that isn't good for anybody. Right. And uh, I met a young man talking about that kind of life who um, luckily went to a school that got a hold of him and is giving him an alternative. Um, and he talked about how that life is full of, you know, rushes, like the rush of robbing somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, getting addicted to that type of rush, the rush of danger, because your life doesn't otherwise have things that give you joy and give you excitement. I mean, at a certain level, I think as humans, there's many good reasons to want to promote joy and fulfillment and not this idea of suffering. And of course, there, that, that idea may have some religious roots. Right. But there are other religions that talk about the goodness of human beings and the use of happiness and joy. I'm, I'm fascinated. This is something I asked Alan Alda about also. You have the text written for you extemporaneously by the people that you talk to, but still, when you're working, do you work with a director? Uh, yeah, I do. Okay. So how do you know as an artist when it's right? Well, the directors don't work with me on my character work. Mm-hmm. Uh, for my character work, I work in a three-pronged way. One, with a person who um, works on the text with me, learning it. Uh, one who works with me physically, looking at videos, mm-hmm. and one who works with me uh, with diction and dialect. Mm-hmm. And those three people are the ones who tell me things about how close or how far away I am. And then um, part of it beyond that, going back to this word kinetic, is my own kinetic feel of if I'm getting it right. And usually if I have that feel, if it clicks in, the audience responds, and that also indicates to me that I've got it right. We just heard the science advisor to the sitcom, The Big Bang Theory, spoke here in New York. And he talked about how fascinating it was to him as a scientist to watch the rehearsal process and then the actual filming because he realized that comedy was scientific, that it was experimental, and the feedback was immediate. The joke either works or it doesn't work. And if it doesn't work, they have to fix it. And so in that way, to him, it was much like a scientific experiment where you're changing the parameters to, to get where you want to go. And so that's, that's one way where you'll know that something's right by the, you know, the laughter of the audience. But there's something actually, you feel it inside that that's it now, that that's, that's correct. Right. And once I've had that feeling of, I would say, a feeling of, um, uh, Unity. It may not be exactly what a person did or exactly how they said it, but there's a, a, a unity between me and them 
where again when we were talking like when we we're talking about the cowboy that I don't feel like myself anymore. And so it I it it isn't that I feel like them because I could never know what that is, but I'm in an in-between place. What my colleague Richard Checkner here at NYU would call a not not. I'm not me, I'm not them. I'm a not not. I'm another positive. Right. Some so kind it, of a synthesis. So it's that sort of midway space. So I guess what that means when you say the word synthesis is that's when I know I've created something. Right? right? That's when I know there's a third thing. And that third thing is the character that I've created by studying that real person and by um giving up some of my own habits to be them. Now, if I start to feel those habits of my own, then I'm not in that third place. Mm-hmm. I'm not in that dress, metaphoric dress or pair of pants that I've created. I'm in my own clothes. And I, it's a very clear difference. What, what do people who you do say to you after they've seen you? Well, I do invite everyone who I do to come and see themselves performed. And because I've been doing this for many, many years now, my goal at this point is to exactly find people who would go to a mountaintop and scream what they have to say, uh, and I just happen to be there. It, it isn't really about me. And so in this play, almost everyone has seen it. One of them is actually Ruth Katz, who uh, was a dean, associate dean at uh, Yale. She's now working in Washington on the Hill uh, on health care. Uh, the cowboy has seen himself many times. Um, and so I like to think that them coming to see this photograph of them uh, gives another dimension to our relationship, as I have with for example, Mary Ellen Mark, who's a great photographer who's taken my picture many times, mm-hmm. as I have with my hairdresser who uh, cut my hair for this show so that I could, you know, have the hair of a man or a woman, you know, a man with long hair. Um, you know, when, when, when somebody creates something about you or for you or if you had an architect and you were happy with their work, there's a, another dimension to that relationship. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, it could be unhappy too, but... But I, I like that. Ann Richards, the late Ann Richards, loved watching me perform her. And I say, when I say that, it's, it certainly sounds like I'm praising or bragging myself or maybe trying to get off the hook for your listeners who would think, um, boy, you know, that would be awful to be done, you know. Uh, but it is a specific sort of relationship of, to a person and their story. Um, and I'm well aware that a person could tell their own story without my help. So it must be that when they come back, what they're really interested in is that third thing that I just talked mm-hmm. about, that thing I created that's not them, it's not me, but that they 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 enjoy seeing that thing. I mean, it's completely different from a, an impressionist, a, yeah. a rich little. That's, a, well, that's that, a caricature. That's a caricature, and that is about power, I think, in, in – a impersonator, even if it's like a, a drag queen, mm-hmm. um, uh, an impersonator is, uh, the author of a different version of that person. In this case, I see it as a, I'm really borrowing their words in order to tell a bigger story. There's also that, that it could be that the impersonator Say if somebody impersonates President Obama or President Bush, 
they are doing a kind of a satire to cause us to question something about the president's power. Mm-hmm. I'm not asking – I don't want the audience to question anything about – I could even in what I do, but I'm not as interested in having the audience question something – and a lot of people assume I am doing that. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not asking the audience to question something about the power of Dean Pizzo or the truth of Dean Pizzo. I'm asking the audience to watch this sort of rail, you know, bunch of, tr- bunch of, of cars on a train that are all unwittingly going in one direction, right? So that each character is telling a part of a big story. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to get the audience to see how big the story is and that the story can only even come close to the truth if it is big and if it has opposing points of view. People confuse opinions with beliefs mm-hmm. and they they confuse opinions with facts. And especially now in America. So I don't really know how to tell a story and I would not dare to think I had the whole story. In such a diverse community of opinion and a diverse community of experiences, I think the only way you can bring the whole picture is to have fragments of pictures. And so I think when somebody like Ruth Katz or Sally Jenkins, a great uh, sports writer, or Elizabeth Strab, a choreographer, I think when Peter Gomes, a preacher, uh, I think when they come to see it, they see, I hope, their value, their own value, how important they are in helping an audience see the big picture. It's almost like a prism. All these colors go into the prism and you get the the white light that comes right. out the other side. That's right. And so if I were the color pink, I'd be proud to see that I were in the prism. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's what I want the, the quote-unquote real people to experience when they come, that they are part of this larger American quilt and that they, um, they've been of service. There's, we're, we're pretty much out of time. I just wanted to ask you, I'm not going to ask you to do a character, but, um, you performed this South African woman and she said the most amazing thing when this child who only had days to live told her that the child had seen her dead mother the night before. Yeah. Could you just say what the, what that woman's response was? Cause it, it just. Right. This is Trudy Howe. And, uh, uh, so she said that, uh, this little girl knew that she was, uh, you know, gonna die. And she came to see me on the Saturday, uh, uh, on the Friday afternoon. And she said that her mother had visited her the night before. Now I knew that Noms' mother had passed away six years prior to that. So I sat her down and I said, well, now what time did your mother visit you? She said, no, it was late at night. I said, well, if you see your mother tonight again, if your mother comes to visit you tonight again, you must tell her that I said thank you very, very much that I could look after you for so long. <laughs> 